Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman, joined today by Crystal Knight co-hosting. Hey, Crystal. Hey, Andrew. This is my first time co-hosting. Really excited to be here. Great to have you. We're also joined by David Ferris, Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University. Maybe you say Roosevelt. I won't fight you over it. Mark Meckler, CEO at Convention of States Action. Mark, David, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Good to have you. So if you've been reading Twitter, you've been actually reading Twitter like it's a book these days, you know, working around with the 38 threads in a row that you're supposed to be able to follow it all. And it's been well, fascinating or a nothing burger, I suppose, depending on your takeaway. Let's start with you, um, David. What's your assessment of, in general, the Twitter files, dumps, and also the relationship to the Hunter Biden laptop story? Sure. I mean, it's an interesting story, right? I mean, it, it involves um, sort of high-level deliberations at Twitter prior to the 2020 election about whether to try to control the flow of information about this Hunter Biden laptop story that that broke about 20 days before the election. Um, so, so in that sense, it's a, it's an interesting snapshot into the decision making at Twitter. Um, I think, you know, you, you can take various positions on the, on the calls that were made. Um, ultimately, you know, Twitter's a private company, right? Um, Elon Musk is doing what he wants to do with it. Um, and, the, and the folks who ran Twitter in 2020 did what they wanted to do with it. Um, I, I certainly think there's a case to be made that um, that they went too far in terms of trying to suppress the story, which I don't think is ultimately all that damaging anyway. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that the discourse about this has gone on long enough for me that it's kind of bleeding into all of the Twitter fixation with Elon Musk himself. And it's making the site very boring to me right now um, because I've kind of made up my mind about this story. I don't think that the Hunter Biden stuff has a ton of purchase with the American people generally nor are, are most people on Twitter, right? So Twitter is currently consumed with a debate <laughs> about Twitter that's irrelevant to like 67% of the country to begin with. Um, and the and the relationship to the Hunter Biden laptop story, uh, you know, I think is is evolving. I don't think that we know everything that we're going to know about that. Um, but I think that uh, in general, um, the, the worst that you that I've seen from the Hunter Biden laptop stuff is some some like elite self dealing that's not necessarily a crime. Um, trading off of your father's name, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, if, if there's more to it, there's more to it. We'll, we'll find that out. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think this is a, a top tier issue for the American people right now. <laughs> Yeah, as uh, David mentioned, Mark, you know, there's a lot of dimensions to the question, uh, the the underlying allegations themselves, whether it's a significant story vis-a-vis -vis the 2020 election or President Biden's future, uh, the, the response to the story being published by, you know, the New York Post, and then all of the discussion, which we've now learned about the inside uh, at Twitter, you know, what they did about this and other topics, too, of course, because there's been a lot come out with the Twitter files. Uh, your assessment? Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, I agree with what David said. Uh, most of the American public isn't paying attention to what's on Twitter. Twitter's not reality. It's its own alternate reality. Most people don't pay attention to it. A lot of journalists do. A lot of media people do. And, and that's why it has oversized importance. I don't think there is a lot interesting coming out about the Hunter Biden story. We already know that that story was suppressed, uh, not just by Twitter, but in a lot of other places. We also know that Jack Dorsey himself got involved sort of late in, in the game and said that this was a mistake to suppress that story. 
That's obvious from the inside communications there. There was debate about this inside Twitter about whether the story should be suppressed or not. So I think there's some interesting stuff in there. I don't think there are any huge revelations. The one place David and I might disagree is when you get into the legality of this, I think we're stumbling into an interesting area of First Amendment law, and it's an area called state actor theory. And this is the idea that if the government gets involved in helping to censor things or causing things to be censored in the private sector, then the private sector actors might actually be acting as state actors. And when you have the FBI uh, issuing warnings, the CIA issuing warnings saying that they expect Russian disinformation and it's, it's gonna be on Hunter Biden, and then this comes out, it looks pretty close to that line. So I think that's a developing area of the law. To me, that was the interesting tidbit about the story. Well, David, since I want to come back to you, you said that you don't think this is, you know, there's much here in this particular story. But House Republicans have already said that they plan to convene a committee that will specifically investigate Hunter Biden. They seem to be really hell bent on taking down on the, the president. So if this doesn't have a lot of meat to it, why are our elected officials wasting government resources on it? Well, that's that's a, a really good question that I would probably turn around on <laughs> government officials wasting those resources. Um, I, I mean, I think the Republicans have been pretty clear for for a while now that they intended to investigate the the laptop and the, and the various issues stemming from the material that's been found on the laptop. Um, it's one of the first things that um, I think presumptive Speaker Kevin McCarthy said was going to happen. Um, you know, the House uh, uh, Judiciary Committee sent that famous tweet. You know, right right after the election um, was called. You know, all about Hunter Biden. Um, and you know, they have the subpoena power, they have the majority, they, they can do with that power what what they want to do. And if they want to spend time, um, litigating what is now honestly pretty old scandal, um, unless you're talking about the Twitter files themselves, um, most of the, the, the allegedly damaging information is from 2017 or earlier. And I'm pretty skeptical that that's going to be substantively or politically, beneficial to the Republicans to, to spend their time and power focusing on things that the American people don't really care about. Uh, I, I just not say nobody cares about this, right? But I think that, you know, we all know what the top issues in this election were, right? It was inflation, crime, and abortion, and democracy, those those four things in whatever order you want to put them. Um, and, and Hunter Biden, I mean, they weren't asking the question, right, at the exit polls, like, is Hunter Biden a top tier issue to you? Um, but I, I don't think it is. And I, I don't think that too many people would argue that it is. Um, there's always the chance that when you run these investigations, you will find some unrelated wrongdoing, right? I mean, the, the Lewinsky affair stemmed from um, a, a, an entirely separate investigation into the Whitewater uh, real estate stuff under President Clinton. So it's possible that by investigating Biden, that Republicans may hope to turn up other um, damaging information or, or other scandals for the president himself. Um, and that's that's always possible. But to me, if I'm Kevin McCarthy, if I'm the House Republicans, um, that's not necessarily a gamble that I would be willing to take in terms of what might be a limited time and power in the House for all they know, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point about the long game. And Mark, I just want to come to you just to have any feedback about what David said. What do you think is the long game in this investigation? Um, what do you think will be the outcome? What should the American public expect once these proceedings have concluded? 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I want to go after the underlying premise. You said the Republicans are hell bent on getting Biden. I think what they're doing is looking into possible serious allegations of corruption. You have the president's son who is in bed with literally we've got video in bed with Russian prostitutes smoking crack. He's going to Ukraine. He's on the board of a Ukrainian oil company. When he openly admits when he was asked why he was on there, he says he has no idea, he has no expertise in oil and gas, no expertise in finance, but he's he's getting millions of dollars from governments all around the world. He has said that 10% was for the big guy. We have people who are testifying in, in a grand jury saying the big guy was Joe Biden. We have Tony Bobolinsky giving hours and hours of testimony to the FBI saying all these deals involve Joe Biden. So the idea that there's nothing there, I think there's plenty of evidence that there's something there. And I think it it's the American people are due to get to the bottom of this and know what really happened. And I don't really care about the politics of it. If you have what appears to be corruption at the highest levels potentially of the federal government, then the American people should know. So it seems like for, at least for conservatives, you know, a lot of the stuff that's in the Twitter files is, you know, as David rightly says, uh, it's stuff we already knew, but, you know, it's a little bit fresher to see it there in print, you know, or there in the digital pixels or whatever, uh, to see the confirmation of everything that you've been saying all this time or something in that direction. I have questions about this. I don't know. It's not really a leak when you know the guy who bought the company puts out the information, but uh, we don't have access to the underlying files themselves, right? It's been cherry picked and handed to a few people who are very capable journalists. No question about that. But the ability to independently read them as raw material and then come to your own conclusions is not possible. And here you've got a guy who owns a company that he spent a fair penny for, and he's trying to resuscitate it every which way he can. A little bit of buzz over some secret files and the analysis thereof. It's easy to see this more as a marketing ploy than as a genuine information tactic. Mark, um, how do you know? I don't know. Do you feel comfortable with the disclosures that have come out that it's a fair representation of what was really going on behind the scenes at Twitter and the kind of perception people have that they put their hand on the scale a bunch in the election or in other cases? Yeah, I do. And I do for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, if you look at the journalists that were chosen, uh, these are not journalists of the right. These are not, uh, they don't write for right-wing publications. They never have. So these are people who you would generally consider of the left or at the best nowadays, maybe in the middle, there are people who are heterodox thinkers. So I think that's number one. Number two is it doesn't do him any good other than the PR value. And I think there is PR value in this to try to skew the files. Look, I knew what was going on. I'm a conservative. I, we saw the throttling going on. And by the way, there's not anybody in the public sphere who was in Twitter who is contradicting any of the stuff that's being said. So even the people at the highest level of Twitter who've been let go now, who have every reason to quote unquote defend themselves are not saying that any of the stuff is that's coming out is untrue or out of context. So I would say we're getting a realistic picture. David, uh, you know, it may not be, as you said, brand new disclosures, more just confirmation of what we already knew. But do you feel like it's validating to the people who have been criticizing Twitter all this time for uh, you know, taking sides or shading or, you know, they don't call it what shadow banning, they called it uh, preferencing. They had some other word for it. So when they say they don't shadow ban, well, sure, they didn't call it that, right? Sure. I mean, I, I'm sure it's validating to, to those who believe that some of the things that Twitter did in the run up to the election were not right, right? Or, or were seeking to intervene in the information environment in a way that was um, you know, at best misguided and at worst sort of externally directed, right? I mean, I do think it's worth noting that in all of the the many threads that I've seen, we, we don't really see any evidence that um, 
that the government ordered Twitter to do anything, right? That this was um, this was Twitter, a private company making decisions, um, you know, maybe under some pressure from some people, right? But like not fundamentally a First Amendment issue. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm comfortable with the, you know, it's like, it's not up to me, right? And, and life is finite and, and irretrievable. And I probably would not read all the Twitter files, even if they were out there and available to me. Right. But you want to know um, they're there. We, <laughs> you're like, yeah. You want to you want them if you needed to. You know, it's like the stack of things you kept in your garage all this time to be sure you had them. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Hoarding or so digital hoarding. Um, <laughs> whoa, so whoa, it's, why uh, the names, you know, <laughs> let's keep it non-judgy for a minute. So it's um, I, I you know, I, I think that it's uh, it's again, there's some there's some interesting things to talk about here in terms of corporate governance, in terms of the issues that Mark raised about the First Amendment. Um, but I think ultimately, I don't think that we're going to be talking about the Twitter files like a year from now or anything, right? If anything, we'll be talking about whatever is coming out of the investigation of, of Hunter Biden out of the out of the house. Um, and that probably would be the, ultimately the politically more consequential thing here. If I have my yeah, eight cent it, summary, I think, uh, uh, go ahead, Mark, you want to say? Yeah, I'd like to add just one thing. And, and this is from my perspective as a conservative that was gaslighted, let's say, for the last three or four years. And and we were told by Twitter that they didn't shadow ban, that they didn't throttle reach, that they didn't limit visibility of conservatives. I mean, they openly stated that. Jack Dorsey said that directly under oath in testimony before Congress. And I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he might not have known. I think this might have been going on at lower level, high levels, but lower levels in the company than Dorsey. But the bottom line is we've been gaslighted for several years. And so I think it is important and validating that this is coming out in public, that these things were actually going on. And I think there's something incredibly dangerous going on in the body politic and the mainstream media is responsible for it, which is these things are true. We now know for sure these things were happening. And the left-wing media, the corporate media, isn't reporting that these things are true and, and that they've been wrong about it and that they've been misled by Twitter. And so what that does is it makes it very difficult for us to communicate. In other words, if you're of the left and you get your media from uh, left-wing sources, and, and I don't complain about that. We have a divided media. That's normal in America. But you have no idea that Twitter lied about this for years. And so now you talk to one of your friends on the right who says, see, we've been vindicated. Twitter has been throttling us. And, and our friends on the left, the people on our left, like we have no idea what you're talking about. And I think this is very unhealthy for the body politic. The left-wing media or the corporate media has a responsibility to tell the truth to the American people that Twitter has been misleading the American people and they have been throttling conservative voices, right or wrong, whether they have the right to do it or not. That's now a fact in the public record. Considering that, Twitter is the public square. Many folks who are into politics and follow news of the day, they go to Twitter first thing in the morning. How do we reconcile with the news that, you know, we now know to be true about the suppression, about the bots, about all the, you know, cover ups for particular sides, you know, news and stories. Now that Elon Musk is the new head, do you think that his his administration or his leadership rather will usher in a new tone to the platform and will people see it as a more, you know, middle of the road um, space where they can get, you know, fair and balanced news. I mean, I think that right now on the evidence it appears he's going to do that. I don't necessarily agree with everything he's doing over there. It is a private company. I like that he's taking responsibility for the things that are going on. And previously, what Twitter said to us is it's it's not us. Jack Dorsey said it's not me. It's the algorithm. We now know all of that was untrue. So I like it that Musk says, hey, if somebody's banned or something's banned and you don't like it, 
then it stops at my desk and you can reach out to me and I'm the guy. So I think that's more transparent. And I do think that's healthier for discourse, for public discourse. One of the things I kind of wonder about all of this stuff is we see this like with FTX, for example, but you see it at Twitter and other places is we tend to think when the decisions adversely affect our interests, that it's this giant effort or coordinated, you know, conspiracy or whatever. I think a lot of times it's just incompetence. <laughs> you know, people are out of their depth and we have brand new technology. And we're not sure what to do with it. And maybe even people are trying their best, but what the end result is, you know, doesn't turn out all that well. Uh, hopefully it gets better in the long run. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, just on the heels of not losing the Senate, in fact, retaining a majority in the Senate now, the Democrats suddenly are losing one and maybe another. And what does that mean for the future of the Senate? We'll talk about it on the debate. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with the debate with our guests for today, David Ferris and Mark Meckler. Before our break, Andrew mentioned a break actually in the Democratic Party. The Georgia runoffs recently happened and Raphael Warnock became the new senator for the state of Georgia. But Kirsten Sinema, nearly two, three days later, decided that she wanted to defect from the Democratic Party. She announced that she will now identify as an independent and run in 2024 as an independent. The question is, is this bad timing? Is this about Kirsten Cinema? Is this more of her being herself? Or is she really trying to set herself up for a re-election win in 2024? Mark, I'll pitch it to you first to give us your reaction. I, well, I, you know, it's funny you pitched it to me because I'm going to rely on David in the sense that uh, I think David had a really good piece on this. I thought he was on point. I think what Kirsten Cinema is doing is she's positioning herself for re-election. And she's doing that, becoming an independent. She's trying to follow in Lisa Murkowski's shoes, essentially, the, the formerly Republican senator from Alaska. I think she knows that she would be in grave danger in a Democratic primary. I think there is a formidable challenger there in Arizona. So I think she's positioning herself to run as an independent in 2024. Absolutely. And, um, you know, speaking of running in 2024, and you mentioned the article that David wrote, David, you had some really nice one-liners in that that piece <laughs> about Kirsten really just trying to save face because she knows that she will face a tough Democratic primary if she were to run as a Democrat. So can you just expand upon your comments there? Sure. Um, I, I think that during her time in the Senate since since 2018, Cinema has tried to position herself as sort of like the Democratic John McCain, you know, um, someone willing to buck the party line, 
um, when she disagrees with it, um, someone you can't always necessarily count on for a roll call vote, <laughs> um, and someone who might, uh, especially in a closely divided Senate, might sort of really complicate the calculus of getting things passed um, through through the Senate um, when you're in the majority. Um, and she's been very successful at that, right? Um, she's been very successful at making herself the center of attention of democratic politics, along with Joe Manchin, um, for the last two years, because she has, you know, sort of very publicly taken stances um, against reforming the filibuster rule, for example, uh, against raising the minimum wage, um, there are things that are uh, important to the Democratic coalition, people that elected them into the Senate. Um, and I think that she's had a, a significant impact in, in changing the shape of legislation that, that comes through the Senate. Now, you could look at that and say, well, that's a great thing, right? Um, that, that she, um, you know, she made the, some of this legislation less, less progressive or, or more palatable to the public, and you, you can make a case for that. Um, the problem for cinema is that is that no one likes her. Um, so <laughs> she's <laughs> she's. What do you really think, David? Democrats. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I could go on about Kirsten Cinema for a long time. Uh, she's not, you know, she's not popular with the press, right? Like she doesn't give national political interviews. Um, she has that working against. She's like the Steve Carlton of politics, um, and she's unpopular with Democrats for for some of the effect that she's had on the agenda. She's unpopular with Democrats because. Not reforming the filibuster means uh, things like voting rights reform or, um, you know, universal pre-K, stuff like that. That didn't get done in this Congress. Um, and she's also not going to be popular with Republicans, right? Like as centrist as she has been, um, the Arizona Republican Party, I think the National Republican Party has moved to the right um, over the last decade or so, at least. And um, she's she's sort of nowhere near those folks either, right? And so if you go through the polling, uh, not a ton of polling on this, but there's polling that shows she's underwater with deeply underwater with Democrats. She's underwater with Republicans. She's underwater with independents. Um, I think there's a sense that her decision-making is opaque, uh, that she's not really explaining some of the things that she's doing um, and some of the, the policies that she's, she's asking for. Um, and so she's unpopular across the board. Uh, she's obviously not going to win a Democratic primary, right? Um, and right. so, as you know, as Mark noted, um, she's looking at Lisa Murkowski. I think she's also looking at, at Joe Lieberman, uh, the former Democratic senator, the former Democratic vice presidential candidate who lost his 2006 primary in Connecticut to Ned Lamont and then ran as an independent and, and won anyway. And, uh, you know, I can't rule anything out in politics, but I think that she starts out with a number of significant disadvantages in that quest as compared to Lieberman, um, most important of which is, A, she's not popular with anyone, and B, she seems to be less popular with Democrats than Republicans, meaning she might, um, you know, she might draw disproportionately from Republicans rather than Democrats. All right. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to offer you a crazy argument. I'm, I'm not going to say it's deliberate. OK, but I just want to kind of put this in a historical perspective a little bit. We've got Joe Manchin, uh, widely perceived by, I think, both sides as the guy who blocked everything, you know, or at least was threatening to um, Kirsten Cinema, who offers that potential as well. If you look at it from a more of a historical lens, you know, the old idea about the House of Representatives was the the rabble, you know, that they would come up with all these crazy things and go in all these directions and do all this stuff. And the one party would take them this way and then the other party would get in and they take it that way. And the Senate, the calm, cool, careful, you know, right. <laughs> the ones who don't move too much, don't change too much. Nothing much happens here. You have uh, cinema and mansion. uh basically offering that as an effect of the Senate, that the Senate becomes a roadblock, and especially with their unwillingness to abandon the filibuster, they're doing the work of the founding fathers intentionally or no, Mark? 
Yeah, I do agree with that. I mean, this is the place where bills were supposed to go to die, when the crazy <laughs> ideas were supposed to be have the sharp edges rounded off. You know, there's an interesting piece that just came into play yesterday. Manchin, for the first time in his career, said he's not ruling out switching to the Republican Party. He's never said that before. He's always said that he was a West Virginia Democrat. Uh, he said yesterday that he's not a Washington, D.C. Democrat, and he'll have to wait and see what happens so I think a lot of stuff is in flux. I think the, the only place I would disagree with David's analysis uh, is as somebody from the right, I can tell you, Kristen Cinema, though people appreciate the things that she did, is deeply, deeply unpopular with Republicans. I've never heard of a Republican that said they would vote for her. And I think she's going to draw moderate Democrats. And there are a lot of those in Arizona. I have a big grassroots there. I've spent a lot of time on the ground in Arizona. I was just there last week. And so I think what you're going to see is you're going to see the moderate Democrats are drawn to Kristen Cinema because she's been behaving as a moderate. I think this is the way back to the Senate for Republicans in Arizona. But if if, in fact, you know, Kirsten is able to draw in moderate Democrats, is that still a path of victory for her to be reelected in 2024? And if we throw in Andrew's you know, wild scenario, or actually it's not a scenario, but in if Joe Manchin actually does defect and go over to the Republican side, then what does that mean for the Democratic Party on the whole, considering, you know, Kirsten's lack of path to victory and Joe Manchin likely being able to swing many of the votes that are that, that will come through over the next two years if he does actually defect. And, and Mark, we'll stay with you right here. Yeah, you know, I think this is the the more interesting way to look at it. And I'm glad you took this slice at it because the reality is 2024 numerically is the worst cycle for Democrats. You know, we cycle through this every three cycles. Numerically, they're going to defend more seats than any other cycle. It's going to be a very rough year. Doesn't mean they're going to lose. I mean, we, we Republicans thought they were going to have a great year this year and it didn't work out that way. But I just don't think that cinema and mansion are going to be as important post 2024 election. David, is there, you know, go, kind of going back to the the inhibitors as a like a political movement, the independents or the, you know, maybe Manchin joins, you know, by defecting from the Democrats. Are they doing what the founding fathers intended? And maybe I don't know, is there room for other people to sort of uncaucus in order to create this st stabilizing block of the do nothing party or something at the middle of both aisles? What do you think? Well, sure. I mean, the Senate has a long tradition of, um, of of bipartisan working groups, you know, usually called gangs, gangs of six, gangs of eight, gangs of 10. You know, you, you get the six or eight or 10 most moderate members of both party and you put them in a room, um, presuming that they are the kingmakers because of the, of the filibuster rule. Um, I, I'll, I'll disagree mildly with Mark here a little bit about the Senate in its intentions, uh, I guess you too, um, which, which is, um, you know, the filibuster is not, <laughs> yeah, no. not in the constitution, right? I mean, it was a, it was a rule that was adopted later. Um, there's, there's nothing in the deliberations that suggested the founders wanted a 60% threshold to pass legislation. And um, this is the, the only major national legislative body in the world that operates by supermajority decision-making rules. And so I've been as against the filibuster when Republicans are, are in charge as I am with Democrats. I think it's an anti-democratic feature of our political order. Um, and so, um, but but Mark's dead right about 2024 in terms of the, the map, right? Like it's very, very hard to imagine Democrats holding the Senate without Arizona and, and West Virginia in their camp. Um, and that's why for Democrats, I think the much more consequential defection will be mentioned because if you 
go to if you go to West Virginia, is that like how many Democrats in the state could get elected to the Senate? I think the answer is one. Um, and that one is Joe Manchin. And if he if he moves, if he if he becomes an independent and caucuses with Democrats, I don't think anybody cares. That might improve his chances of re-election, and that, that that's fine. If he switches to the Republicans, um, that seat is gone for a generation. Um, and so if I'm Chuck Schumer, I, I'm much more worried about the Joe Manchin situation than I would be about the Kirsten Cinema situation because lots of I think lots of Democrats could one could run and win in, in Arizona. You know, not not like an AOC type, maybe, but but uh, but it's certainly not. Kirsten Cinema is the only person in the state that could win that seat. Well, certainly a lot to consider for the leadership of the Democratic Party, and a lot of enticing for <laughs> other people who might view that favorably. When we come back, we're taking another quick break, but when we come back, uh, China protests. Of course, we have protests going on in Iran. We have all, you know all over. And is the Biden administration doing enough to encourage them? We'll talk about it on the debate. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman today, joined by Crystal Knight. Uh, great to have you again with us, Crystal, as a co-host. And so, Mark, you uh, your organization has an interesting poll out about the perception of the Biden administration's response or not to things that are going on in China with protests against their COVID lockdown policy. Uh, what for a lot of us feels like the late 80s, but maybe is different in a bunch of ways. What did your poll find? We found us a strong plurality around 48% of Americans think that uh, the Biden administration isn't doing enough to strongly support the protesters in China, those protesting the lockdowns. We've seen a, some pretty draconian stuff coming out of China. The Chinese authorities actually have been forced to back down a bit uh, by their own citizens and the reaction from their own citizens. You know, these things. That, that is an amazing divide. thing, by the way. Right. I mean, that's yeah. like if you were uh, nobody. I was not expecting that. I've seen tanks and a guy holding shopping carts. I was not expecting. Oh, OK. You know, we'll give in. <laughs> well, I think part of it is the nature of the protests because they're all over the country. They're taking place on in a small scale and a large scale, but they're not generally in places like Tiananmen Square, where it's easy to restrain the protesters or make a broad example of them. So I think part of it is just practical politics. I think the interesting thing about the poll, you know, when we do these polls, one of the things that we expect and we generally see is a really neat partisan breakdown. And you just expect, you know, Republicans are going to be, generally speaking, I hate to make it this simplistic, but they're generally going to be against things that Joe Biden does, and Democrats are generally going to be for them. Independents lately seem to be skewing on the issues for uh, for Republicans, but it didn't work out that way in the election, obviously. The interesting thing in this poll was a full 52% of Democrats said they didn't know. 
And they were the only group that didn't know whether they thought Biden should do more or less. And I think this is really interesting. And it does show the partisan nature of our political, our body politic right now, because I think Joe Biden hasn't been really clear on what he thinks. And so those who would normally take their talking points from the president, and I don't mean that in any negative way, it's the normal partisan stuff. They're not getting the talking points from the president. And so they're just not sure what they think about China. Uh, Republicans are like 77, 78% say that the president should be doing more and being stronger on China. You have this block of voters that are just unsure because I think the president is not expressing himself clearly on the issue. You know, it's it's kind of a weird thing, right? You would think that supporting protests against an authoritarian regime that we are geopolitical opponents of, uh, you know, maybe not quite adversaries, but, you know, strategic competitors, whatever. You would think that coming out in favor of the people protesting those policies, that would be an easy win for both sides. Right. And yet here you have sort of a strategic ambiguity about whether to support the protesters. David, your perception of the Biden administration's response vis-a-vis the Chinese uh, populace or kind of the lack of messaging on this topic? Or do you think that's not fair? Do you think he has been clear? No, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he could be a little bit more forceful in his uh, his denunciations of, of certain uh, Chinese government excesses. I mean, I will say in a broader sense, um, that American China policy has taken uh, a more confrontational stance over the past seven years. Um, I think that's something you really have to credit uh, former President Trump with for for reorienting American policy on on this particular er- issue. Um, China is one of the most authoritarian countries in the world with a just absolutely depraved human right human rights record. There's an ongoing genocide um, that's being perpetrated against uh, against Muslims in China. Um, and you you add on top of that these just like absolutely deranged COVID policies um, that they are still pursuing in the in the interest of zero COVID that has had the practical result of, of imprisoning people in big cities in their apartment buildings for weeks and months at a time, um, just completely intolerable stuff, you know. Um, and so, but I think that strategically, um, what what might be happening inside the Biden administration is is figuring out like, does this have any chance of success? Um, there's a, there's a lot of political science on this in terms of democratization, right? Like if, if you're going to have uh, a government overthrown, a pr- particularly a strong authoritarian government overthrown, it really has to be from the inside. You can have people take the squares, right? You can have millions of people in the streets, but ultimately someone in the security apparatus, somebody in the, some elites in the, in the, in the CCP need to decide people with power need to decide that they are going to side with the protesters and not the state. Um, and it could be that Biden is and the Biden administration is waiting and seeing uh, whether there's any evidence to suggest that this could that this could result in in a kind of a rupture. Now, I would argue that a rupture is really unlikely, and that there's, there's really not a ton of cost to be paid for, um, for for more publicly taking the side of the protesters here. Um, I'm not sure that the, what the downside is ultimately when there's already so much contention between the U.S. and China right now, and I think that the that the U.S. has made a a perfectly reasonable decision. Um, to, to claw back some elements of sort of sort of free trade willy-nilly with China where um, when there's a crisis, we find that we don't have the medicines that we need or we don't have the semiconductors that we need to build cars. Um, I think a little bit of, uh, of U.S. national manufacturing policy um, that, that seeks to, to onshore some critical um, trade components and production components and uh, what do you call them, production cycles, this kind of thing, uh, you know, I think that's broadly popular with the American people. I think there's a reason that the Biden administration did not reverse course on some of the stuff from the Trump administration. Um, and I, I think that he may be underestimating the public's appetite for, uh, you know, sort of, sort of sharper words with China. I think Mark's right about that. 
you know, I always try to figure out what what could somebody be thinking, you know, what right, what what could the possible motive be? Is there any thought that maybe too much siding with the protesters in China sounds like a repudiation of the not nearly what China did in terms of COVID policy, but sort of, you know, compared to what conservatives have said about COVID policy, the Biden administration was more pro lockdown, more pro restriction, all these things. Are they afraid that they're going to, you know, fuel Republicans or something like that? Again, just trying, you know, I, I see your angle that uh, they they don't want to pick a losing side, you know, and also they're concerned about repercussions if they too much alienate China. But is it maybe looking like they come out on the other side of COVID policy or something like this? David, am I reaching too far? It's, it's, it's an interesting theory. I mean, I think, um, you know, the pandemic stuff is fraught for the Biden administration, right? I mean, at this point, it's like, you know, you have conservatives who are mad about the mandates, you know, vaccine mandates and stuff like that. And you have like people on the left who think we should all still be wearing masks and things like that. Um, and so they, they're kind of trying to walk this fine line of public opinion. But ultimately, I think that they would prefer not really to talk about the pandemic at all. So um, as much as there's maybe nothing to see here debate. anymore. <laughs> right, right. This uh, so People are sick with something. I don't know what it is. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think I think there's a good political case to be made that the Biden administration has um, has done pretty well in navigating that 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 complex COVID environment, um, you know, sort of keeping some restrictions in place early in the administration, um, ultimately siding with the governor's lifting mask mandates and things like that. Um, and that they, you know, maybe they just don't want to rock the boat with pandemic stuff. Um, and so that that's certainly possible, right? Um, there, there could be a lot of reasons that he doesn't want to get too involved in this. But, um, you know, ultimately, uh, as the president of the United States, I think you always want to be on the side of, uh, of protesters and, and dissent um, against authoritarianism. I, just, I don't think it's, it's, it's really interesting that there's huge protests going on against uh, in, in, in authoritarian countries to major U.S. adversaries in, in Iran and, and China. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, for, for their sake, I hope they're successful. You know, and what, what, whatever the U.S. can do to help, I think they should do. I think we should be aware that some things that we might do could backfire um, by by association. Uh, we don't want to be seen to have too heavy a hand here, like because that can have long run blowback, right? Like the things that the U.S. did in say in Eastern Europe in the color revolutions uh, earlier this century caused a lot of resentment in Russia, right? Um, and so you have to be careful about how you want to throw your power around um, and and the kind of the impact that that might have in the long run. But David, I, I want to just go back to something that you said earlier about messaging. And if we're being honest about the Biden administration, they have not done the best job with sharing with the American public their positions on a number of issues. And I think, you know, to Andrew's point about maybe the president or maybe the administration doesn't want to, you know, speak up or speak too loudly because it could signal support of the COVID lockdowns or support against the COVID lockdowns. And we know that that's such a that's such a very that's a that's a touchy topic in this country. People feel very strongly on either side of it, but it doesn't serve the administration to continue to play this middle road with messaging because, you know, to to Mark's point in the poll, it frustrates Americans. People don't know what to feel about, you know, what's happening in China because we're not hearing clear message points from this administration. And so I just want to push back a little bit, a little bit and say, we need an administration and we need a president who is clear and decisive on all of the policy issues, whether it benefits, um, you know, the public opinion or not. And so 
what do you think about this administration? It's just how they've been messaging in general and how it really does go to 50, 52% of Democrats not knowing how to feel about the protests in China. Well, yeah, sure. I'll say a few things. I mean, one, foreign policy issues generally are not top of mind for Americans unless unless the U.S. is involved in a conflict, right? Um, so it's not surprising to me that a lot of people don't have an opinion about this. Um, it's true that they're not getting elite cues from the president, right? That's absolutely true. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly on board with the idea that he could be more forcefully on the side of the protesters here. Um, but I, let me put in a little bit of a plea for ambiguity, <laughs> okay? Um, which is, uh, and I'll specifically talk about Taiwan, okay? Um, the, Joe Biden has gotten himself in trouble many times during his presidency by like outrunning the official long-running U.S. position on Taiwan, right? He's, he's gone out there and been like, yeah, we'll come, you know, we'll fight for Taiwan for sure. We'll get into a war. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's not the official position, right? Um, you can, of course, make an argument that we might be better off with a clearer position on it, right? But the whole point is strategic ambiguity, um, right? You, you want to lend support, uh, you know, sell arms, uh, give other kinds of intelligence support to Taiwan, but you also don't want to antagonize China, right? Like we do not want to get into a shooting war with China. Um, uh, China, I think, has uh, some of its its weaknesses have really been exposed over the past couple of years. Um, some of the weaknesses of, of you know, single party authoritarianism and top down decision making, uh, and that's gotten them into this COVID pickle that they're in right now. Um, but we, you know, they're also they're not a paper tiger, right? Like you have to be careful um, in, in terms of how big of a, a break that you want to be drawing with them. So um, anyway, that's my plea for ambiguity. You know, I'll just leave that on a note of ambiguity. Can, can I throw in one very positive thing? Sure, as bad please. as what's going on in China but keep right it ambiguous. now. Okay, that's, that's the time. I'm going to be really clear about this. <laughs> as bad as the situation in China is, I think it points out an area of really uh, cohesive feelings between Democrats and Republicans, generally speaking, in the United States, both the public and in Congress about dealing with China. And you mentioned that you know, the Biden administration didn't really switch its position on China from the Trump administration. That's one of the few things. I think there's bipartisan agreement that China is our greatest geopolitical foe. I think we're taking it much more seriously. And I love to see somewhere where Americans can come together, especially in the political arena, and have agreement. And I think there is widespread agreement on this. I think that's a very good thing for the body politic in general. So we're just about totally out of time, but I always like to end with something that's a little bit lighter. This is maybe not necessarily light, but at least uh, you know, off the topics for the moment. We're almost up against the end of the year. Uh, that's coming really fast, man. Uh, so in 2022, I would say we saw a lot of things that were surprising. A lot of things that were surprising. And some that maybe aren't that surprising in retrospect. But my question for both of you is, and Christoph, feel free to give your opinion as well. Um, what's the big, most surprising thing of the year? Now, I've got a multiple choice. Okay, I'll give you my list, but feel free to color outside the lines. Uh, I had Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Elon actually buying Twitter. The Supreme Court reversing Roe versus Wade, the passing of the Queen, and of course, trumping all of them, not Trump, but Netflix cracking down on account sharing. So uh, let's start with you, David. <laughs> Is there a um, a big surprise story of 2022 either on that list or something else I didn't mention? Yeah, I mean, I think if you had asked me in December, if you had presented this list to me in December of 2021, I would have said, what are you talking about? Elon Musk buying Twitter like like that. Was, I don't think that was on anyone's radar. Uh, I was like, you mean the electric car guy? That's so weird. Um, so that to me has been the most unexpected development. You know, like a lot of journalists and, and analysts, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. Um, it has been 
um, it has been a ride. Um, and so that, that I don't think anybody saw that coming. I mean, I, I think Roe v. Wade, I think that was kind of baked in when this year started. Um, and uh, we're already getting sort of some sense that Russia might invade Ukraine. So I'm going to go with Musk and Twitter. That's my final right. answer in the lifelines. <laughs> Mark, dissent or agreement? I'm going off script here. Uh, nice. There is no way that I could have predicted the deep dive of yay into radical anti-Semitism and his new partner, the white nationalist, Nick Fuentes. I just, to me, when I saw all that stuff happening, I just thought, okay, that is so far off the rails. Nobody could have predicted that. You're telling me that Kanye West now yay doing vocal impressions of fake caricature Benjamin Netanyahu while waving a net around on the Alex Jones show wasn't on your radar. Come on, man. Where's your way out there, man? Crystal, uh, anything you want to add? Um, I would. I agree with, you know, David about Elon Musk. I, I definitely didn't see that on my calendar for 2022. Uh, I'm not really surprised about Kanye West. I think it's been tracking for the last couple of years that he has been on a cognitive decline. Um, but I think I was most surprised about the Netflix password sharing. I mean, who doesn't <laughs> share passwords? Do they that not understand what we all for. do? <laughs> Everyone shares a password. I mean, I'm the only one to vote for this. But honestly, I just thought the queen would live forever. I, you know, I just... <laughs> It's the kind of thing it's it's happened for so long that you think it can go on and on and on and on and on. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, David Ferris, Mark Meckler, and to my co-host, Crystal Knight. Uh, you guys have been fantastic. I appreciate the conversation, all the insights and the collegiality, which is always what we're striving for here on The Debate at Newsweek. Newsweek.